This is one of the gripping books of the New Old Testament, I feel, because this is the story of how to lose a kingdom. And as we have been looking at these Old Testament books, we've seen that the key to making them live and vital and interesting in our own lives is to see that each of these, uh, each of the stories and incidents of these Old Testament books is a visual aid, an acted out drama by which God is showing us what's going on in our own lives. And we can uh, see ourselves in every one of these Old Testament stories. And when we do, we discover that it just comes to light, that the words take on eyes and look at us and words and speak to us. And we discover that here is something meant exactly and directly for us. And uh, this is in view of the picture that the Bible gives of man that every one of us is intended to be a king over a kingdom. And the whole purpose of the Lord Jesus coming into our lives, as Paul states in the book of Romans, is that we might learn how to reign in life, reign over the kingdom of our lives in victory and in honor and in a proper God-given authority. And it's this that makes the makes human life full and complete and fascinating when we learn to walk in victory. One of the overworked trite phrases that is constantly bandied about in Christian circles is the phrase, the victorious life. And unfortunately, that has been abused and distorted and twisted and perverted so many times that it has lost much of its meaning for us. But if you take it in the freshness of its original intention, that's exactly what God has in mind for you. That you might learn how to walk in victory as a king over the kingdom of your life and thus find the intended, intended fulfillment of God for you. Now that's what these books of the Old Testament illustrate for us. Especially these books that have to do with the, with the monarchy in Israel. God called aside a nation, the nation Israel. He marked it out of his, as his own people. He made, in a sense, a stage of the little land of Israel. And he bade the whole world to look upon that nation and that what went on in that stage as an enacted portrayal of what's going on constantly throughout the whole course of human history and individually going on in your life and mine. So that if we see these books like that, they take on tremendous, intense meaning and, and uh, purpose in our, in our lives. Now, the book of 1 Kings is a story of what it means to reign and the secret of success in reigning over the kingdom of your life. And that secret is always the same. It's the secret of learning to be under the authority and dominion and submissive to the government of God in your own life. In other words, man was made to have dominion, but he can never exercise that dominion unless he first subjects himself to the dominion of God. And if you yield to God's dominion, you are given dominion over the areas of your own life. 
And on the other hand, if you refuse the dominion of God in your own life, you cannot under any circumstance and by any means fulfill your desire to exercise authority over the rest of your life. It's impossible. And this is what these books te- teach us. Now that's why all through this book of First Kings you'll find that the spotlight is on the throne. It's the king that's the important one. For as the king goes, so goes the nation. Just as in your life, what your will permits, the will is the king in your existence, what your will permits, what you voluntarily allow to enter in to the control room of your life, determines how the kingdom of your life goes. And uh, throughout this whole book, you find that the spotlight, like a... Uh, a spotlight in a drama focuses right constantly upon who occupies the throne. Now it opens with King Solomon upon the throne, the uh, the successor to David. And as the book opens, uh, if you've been reading it, you'll know, you'll remember that David is still king when the book opens. But immediately he's confronted with the re- rebellion of another one of his sons, Adonijah, and Adonijah attempted to gain control of the throne even before his father David had died. And David, learning of this, acts to put Solomon on the throne. And Solomon then is anointed king while his father still lives and assumes the throne, in effect, while David is still alive. And this indicates the first mark of what a real rule, real reigning authority in your life and mine will be. It's that authority must come, as I've already suggested, by by the gift and hand of God, that we cannot reign except as we're established by God. And that when we give ourselves to the authority of God, it becomes his responsibility to bring every circumstance and every enemy and every rebellion that would otherwise threaten our reign under control. And this is what he does in the case of Adonijah. And then as you go on, in the second and third chapters, you you see Solomon coming to the throne. He rules in power and might and glory. Solomon is the, Solomon's reign marked the greatest extent of the kingdom of Israel. And it was particularly, uh, characterized by a display of outward majesty and power. But in chapter 3, you have the seeds of the beginnings of defeat. And these are very, very important to notice. In chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, we read, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David, until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. And then the third verse, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only, only, he sacrificed and burnt incense at the high places. Now, here's a man who loves God. He loves him with all his heart. He begins his reign with a uh, a wonderful 
expression of yieldedness and desire for God's rule and authority in his life. He follows in the footsteps of his father, David. But nevertheless, he allows two little things which seemingly are very small importance, trivial matters, that ultimately overthrow his kingdom. He makes an alliance with the daughter of Pharaoh and uh, brings the daughter of the king of Egypt into the into the central life of the nation of Israel. And Egypt, you remember, is always a picture of the world. And here is an alliance made with the world. And then he worships yet at the high places. Now, in the pagan religions, all the worship of the pagan rites was conducted up on the tops of mountains. They still do this. And up on these mountains, the pagan tribes had erected altars. And uh, in many places, these altars were the center of very idolatrous and uh, licentious worship. Frequently, it was the place where the fertility gods were worshipped in a in a in a display that was nothing more nor less than a sexual orgy. For these fertility gods were the gods of sex. But uh, uh, the altars were also taken over by the people of Israel and used for the sacrifices to Jehovah. And though the ark of God was now in the city of Jerusalem where David had placed it, in the tabernacle where it belonged, Solomon did not offer at the tap, at the, at the, uh, uh, altar in the tabernacle, but instead was offering on these high places. Offering to God, but offering sacrifices in pagan areas. And all of this is a picture of the fact that though outwardly there was much of beauty and uh, much to be admired in this young man's rule and reign, his heart was in general set in the right direction. Nevertheless, there was a uh, an area that was not fully committed. There was a weakness in his fellowship. There was a lack of understanding that the secret of God's love lay in that inner yieldedness to his will that is represented by a worship before the Ark of the Covenant. Just as in many and many a life, there is oftentimes much of outward yieldedness and commitment to the will of God, but in the private inner life there is a lack of warmth, a hunger after that, after God. And it was here that the strength of David so visibly lay. No matter what David may have done, even though he fell into the black sins of murder and adultery, nevertheless, in the inner sanctums of his heart, there was a deep and abiding commitment to the will of God and a hungering after the person of God. You see it breathing out through all the Psalms of David. But this is lacking in Solomon. And this is the first indication of something wrong in his life. Now, as you go on, the story takes us into the deep. Uh, description of the beauty and display of the greatness of the kingdom of Solomon, and the second mark of a God-given reign and authority and uh, power is given to us in chapter uh, three as well, where we have the story of Solomon's dream when God appeared to him and asked him if he to ask for whatever he wanted, and uh, Solomon. In a marvelous passage here, ask not for riches or for honor, but he asks for wisdom. Give thy servant, therefore, an understanding mind 
to govern thy people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this thy great people? And in beginning his reign like this, Solomon indicated that he had uh, grasped to a great extent that which was essentially needed in in exercising authority within the kingdom God gave him, and that was wisdom. When you come to the New Testament, you find this is true. Remember in the book of Hebrews, the writer takes the uh, Hebrews that he's writing to to task because he says, when for the time you ought to be teachers, when you've been Christians long enough that by now you ought to be able to teach others, you have need that somebody take you into the kindergarten and instruct you all over again about the ABCs of the Christian life. And then he gives us the mark of maturity. He says, the sign of those who have learned to really walk and have grown up in Christ is that they, by reason of use, they have their senses exercised to discern between good and evil. That's the problem, isn't it, today? Good looks bad and bad looks good. Anybody can tell between good and evil when good looks good and evil looks evil. But the great problem is to tell evil when it comes smiling at you, dripping with solicitude, and seems to offer you everything good that you've been looking for. And Christian maturity comes when we have learned, you see, to distinguish in exercising the spirit of wisdom to distinguish between good and evil. That which seems to minister, perhaps, to the, the spirit, but is actually uh, a clever trap of Satan to implant a seed of distrust into the heart that will eventually produce terrible fruit a few years down the stream of life. And this is what we, uh, Solomon asked for. And God granted him his request. But you'll notice that he made one slight weakness, there was one slight weakness in his request. He granted, he asked for wisdom that he may govern the people. And we could say that he might govern his own life, first of all. Because that was where he began to fail. And the interesting thing is that it's evident from this that God knows exactly what is in a person. And he granted Solomon this, but he gave with him also the circumstances that put his wisdom to the test. And God does this with all of us. God knows exactly what's in us. And he gives us what uh, he cried, something from God, and want it bad enough, he'll give it to us. But he also, and I say this almost with bated breath, he also puts us in circumstances that will bring out what is in us. And along with the wisdom, he gave to Solomon riches and honor. And it was the riches and the honor that finally was the trap that overthrew Solomon. As Solomon gloried and exulted in the magnificence of his kingdom, pride began to enter into his heart. And as we'll see a little bit later, his downfall came as a result of that. Now we have the third mark of what it means to reign. Not only... The first mark is that it is, it is a dependence upon God to establish your rule in, in your own, the kingdom of your own life. The second is that it takes wisdom, insight, understanding of yourself. And if we're walking in the spirit, this is always the mark of the man of God. 
that he is given wisdom to understand himself and his uh, and the circumstances of his life. And we have, of course, this famous test by which Solomon demonstrated his wisdom when the two mothers brought the baby, you remember, to him. And uh, they both had a baby, but one baby had died. And both mothers claimed the living baby. And Solomon was asked to decide which mother it was. And in a display of his wisdom to analyze others' problems, he said, bring a sword. And uh, laying the baby down before these two mothers, he said, now divide the baby in half. And give one half to one woman and one half to the other. And you remember how wise he was in that the mother of the, the real mother of the child said, oh no, don't do that. Let the other woman have the baby, if that's the case. But the other woman said, no, that's fine. That's perfectly fair. You divide the child and we'll each take half. And Solomon knew immediately who the real mother was. Only a mother's heart would respond like that. And thus his wisdom was demonstrated for them. And you have this this commentary on how much wisdom Solomon was given in verse chapter 4, verse 29. We read, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and largeness of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East. By the way, that includes all the so-called wisdom of the Orient, uh, of the Chinese, of the Indian peoples and all, and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and Heman and Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal. These were uh, newspaper commentators of that day. And his fame was in all the nations round about. He also uttered 3,000 proverbs. You have them recorded in the book of Proverbs. And his songs were a thousand and five. Of those we only have one, the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and fishes. And men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. What a picture this is of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. We have the mind of Christ. The one, He who is spiritual discerneth all things does not need for anyone to teach him, but he discerns all things, that he's able to analyze and understand these things. Now in chapter 4, you also have the third mark of what it means to reign, orderliness. A kingdom that is orderly. Uh, God is not the author of confusion, but he does things decently and in order. And in chapter 4 also, you have The fourth mark in verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. That is a total control over all that God intended him to have. Have you learned to reign like that in life? This is what God... Uh, the mark of what God wants in this. And then in chapters 5 through 8, you have the story of the glory of the temple that Solomon built and the, the wonderful description of this beautiful building. 
And as you read this, you see how how marvelous it was that as you went into the interior of it, it became even more glorious than outwardly, so that the entire interior of the temple was paved with gold. Everything was covered with gold. And to have entered into that sanctuary must have been a most amazing experience, when actually everything you touched was solid, was, uh, was covered with gold. And it must have been an amazing sight as, uh, uh, as you went into the interior of this temple. But the, the central glory of it was the Shekinah glory of God, which came down and dwelt in the holy place as Solomon de- dedicated the temple. And in a marvelous prayer, uh, which it would do well for you to study, Solomon gives thanksgiving to the grace of God and recognizes again the one great principle by which a kingdom can ever be maintained, and that is responsibility of the king in obedience to the throne of God. This is where it starts. If you, if you yield dominion, you will be given dominion. This is the great principle of this book. Then we have the story, wonderful in its detail, of the visit of the Queen of Sheba to Solomon, and Hollywood has been interested in that, and also the visit of the king of Tyre, and the recognition of the nations of the glory of Solomon's kingdom. And then suddenly, in chapter 11, the whole story takes a quick turn in the other direction. And we read the results, the evil results of the seeds of evil that were sown earlier, mentioned earlier in Solomon's life. Beginning with verse 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. The daughter of Pharaoh and Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. These are pagan tribes. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these. In love, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And the greatest understatement in the Bible, his wives turned away his heart. This is the man who in the book of Proverbs wrote, Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing. And this is the greatest example I know of, of a good thing carried to extremes. One thousand wives. Somebody has suggested he was amply punished by having one thousand mothers-in-law. <laughs> but this marks the weakness and the failure of Solomon. As he turned, his heart was turned away. Now notice where it began. This man, in all the magnificence of his rule and reign, with the glory, uh, the greatest glory in the uh, of the kingdom committed to him, uh, with so much of outward magnificence evidencing the the uh, blessing of God upon his life. But his downfall began when his heart became captured by something that God had prohibited to him. And this is exactly in line with the warning that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, watch out where your heart goes. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
And the first step in moral decline always begins with the emotions. What do you allow your emotions to center upon? What captures that central place of uh, emotion in your life? That's where the decline begins. And then it is followed, we read, that Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the sex gods, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. This was the hideous image that uh, in which a fire was built, and in which children... Uh, were thrown into the fire at the height of the religious uh, festival and uh, rites that centered around the worship of this this grinning god of fire. And it was Solomon who built this place. And for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, another fertility god, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their God. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away. And in rapid succession, in the rest of this chapter, you read three times, the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. First, Hadad the Edomite, the man of the flesh. And then God, verse 23, also raised up an adversary to him, Rezon, the son of Eliada who had fled from his master, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. And then, in verse 26, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite, who split the kingdom in the following chapters. So that these adversaries came in to overthrow the def- and accomplish the defeat of Solomon. And the chapter closes with Solomon sleeping with his fathers, buried in the city of David. A sudden collapse to the glory and majesty of this kingdom. Just this week, I heard of a man, a man of great, a a minister of great pulpit power, who has exercised a tremendous ministry in many ways here on the West Coast for God, whose whole ministry suddenly collapsed as he was brought up before his session on moral charges. And it was discovered that There had been an unjudged uh, affection in his heart that had been going on behind the scenes for year after year after year. And despite the outward display of power and of authority that he exercised in his ministry, there was eating away at his heart, beginning at the place of his emotions, this seed that was utterly to overthrow his kingdom. This is a story that's repeated again and again. Now, quickly, through the rest of the book, in uh, chapter 12, you have the beginning of the second movement in this book, the breakup of the kingdom and the degradation of it. The story of Jeroboam, who split the kingdom and took the ten tribes of Israel in the north and began the northern kingdom and introduced the awful worship of the golden calves to Israel. You recall the story of, of Israel when Moses went up onto the mountain 
And while he was up on the mountain communing with God, the people of Israel down at the foot of the mountain came to, to Aaron and said, we want to have a God that we can worship like the nations. And you remember what Aaron told Moses after he got down from the mountain. He said, I told them to bring all their gold, all their earrings, and all their jewelry. And he said, I, I took all this gold and I threw it into the fire. And what should come walking out but a calf? This calf came out, he said. And we fell down and worshipped this calf, calling it Jehovah. It was not that they intended to be idolatrous. They simply wanted something, some visible evidence that they could pin their worship upon, center their worship on. And now when we come to the sin of Jeroboam, and he's forever afterward known in Israel as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin, you discover that it's not one calf, but two calves. It's that same sin multiplied, doubled in its intensity and power that is introduced into the life of the nation by Jeroboam. And the chapter 14 presents to us the story of the, of the invasion and defeat of Israel by Egypt. Egypt, from which God had led this people out. The type of the world in its ways, in its wickedness, in its folly, in its futility and foolishness. And we read in chapter 14, verse 25, In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord. He assaulted the place of worship, first of all. And the treasures of the king's house, he took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. You get the picture of this? Here's the picture of, an, of someone who, knowing God, seeking to walk with God, but not fully judging the emotions and attachments of his heart, is finally overmined and goes back into the ways of the world, into all the foolishness and manifestation of the world, and loses that inner glory and sense of worship where God is exalted in the place of the temple within uh, then you have the story as it progresses here in the various kings that come to the throne of Israel, Nadad, followed by Basha and Zimri, and finally Ahab and his wicked wife, Jezebel. Then begins in chapter 17, the final part of the book, where you have introduced the prophetic ministry. Now here's the ministry of Elijah. And... Uh, there are other prophets who have come before Elijah, but they did not do any miracles. Elijah begins the, the ministry of miracle in the Bible. The prophets who ministered in Judah, the southern kingdom, did no miracles because there God's testimony was still owned as being the central life of the nation. But in, in Israel, the northern kingdom, where God's presence was rejected and he was worshipped and in, in his place where the golden calves were worshipped you find the ministry of miracles which are a testimony to the people that God is in their midst and a way by which God is seeking to shake us up and get us aware of the fact that we have drifted away from him and bring them back to him we can't dwell on this tonight I wish you, we had time to go over this, and perhaps we will later on sometime spend more time with the ministry of Elijah, because it's a tremendous ministry. 
and a tremendous revelation of God's dealings with the human heart. But you have the story of how Elijah's, uh, first of all, uh, his ministry was to shut the heavens so that it did not rain upon the land for three years, and then to call down fire from heaven upon the uh, sheriffs and others who were sent to arrest him and bring him before the king. And finally, as as these miracles arrested the eyes of the people, there came a degree of repentance. They understood that God was dealing with a harsh hand, as God sometimes has to move into our lives and and deal in chastening and judgment to wake us up, to make us aware of how we're drifting away from that central worship of him in the innermost part of the being. And when this happened, there came a, at last the judgment of Baal. You remember the priests of Baal up on Mount Carmel? When the two uh, philosophies in Israel came to a headlong clash, and God uh, uh, vindicated his honor by sending fire from heaven to destroy all the priests of Baal and all the offering and all the water that was poured upon the offering, and God reigned in mighty power. And when that judgment was exercised, then the heavens were opened again and rain poured down upon the land. It's all a parable for us of what happens in our lives when we resist the central right of God to rule in our hearts and God brings us under chastening and at last our stubbornness is broken and our willful rebellion is ended and we're, we're broken at last before God and then the Rain of grace begins again and pours down upon us to soften our hearts and bring fruit and blessing to the land again. This is followed by the personal story of Elijah and how frightened he was with Jezebel. I'm always amused by this. Here's this this fearless prophet, this rugged man of God who has faced 400 priests alone on the mount of on top of the mountain, now running in fright and terror from an angry woman. And he says, as he hides under the juniper bush, he says, Lord, I've had enough. Uh, It was hard, bad enough facing 400 priests of Baal, but when this one woman gets after me, that's enough. And she was threatening his life. And I've always been amused by that because he says, Lord, I've had enough. Take my life. But he doesn't mean that, of course, because all he'd have to do is walk out and find Jezebel and she'd accommodate him. But he's hiding under the juniper bush. And God deals with him in wondrous grace. And we have this ministry of how God took care of him. The first thing he did was put him to bed and give him a good night's rest. And then he gave him a good square meal and took care of his needs that way. And finally, he taught him the greatest secret that Elijah ever learned. That was that God doesn't move through earthquake and fire and thunder always, but through the still, small voice of a changed conscience. And this has been a great encouragement to me. I confess there have been times when, like Elijah, I've waited and wondered and and prayed for the wind of God to just come sweeping through this church. And there have times, been times when I've wished an, a moral earthquake would just shake people up and make them realize what's going on. And times when I've literally prayed that the, that the fire of God would just sweep through us here and burn out all the dross. And God said to me, no, it's not going to go that way. It's going to be by the still small voice of the Spirit as a, 
as a conscience is awakened before God and a life begins to change like the spring coming in and changes the whole face of a countryside. This is God's major way of moving and it's been wonderful to see him move that way. The close of the book is the story of King Ahab and his failure and his folly, his self-centered desire for the vineyard of Naboth and the judgment of God And it finally closes in chapter 22 with the story of how God works through what seems to be accidental circumstances. When the two kings of of Israel and Judah go out to battle and the king of Israel in in his satanic cleverness tries to put the king of Judah out in the forefront of the battle and dresses him in his own armor in the king of Israel's armor, in order that he might uh, uh, be mistaken and shot at. But as King uh, Ahab is complimenting himself upon the way he has, he has tricked the king of Judah into being exposed to danger, we read that an arrow on the part, uh, shot into the air at a venture, just by chance on the part of a warrior on the opposite side, finds its way to him and pierces through a crack in his armor into his heart. And God's judgment is accomplished. God is the ju- is the God of history. God is the God of circumstances. God is the God of accidents. God is behind all the movements of our lives. This is the revelation of this. And as I close this book of First Kings, the verse that comes most prominently to my mind, that thrusts itself upon my heart, is this verse. Keep thy heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. It's not the outward circumstances that will ever dethrone you from the place of rain in your life. Nothing that you run up against in terms of outward pressures, outward circumstances, will ever succeed in dethroning you. Your dethronement, your moving back into the slavery and bondage of the flesh or of the world, the flesh or the devil will only come as you permit some some rival worship to enter into your heart and dethrone the, the place of God there. And when that occurs, when your emotions become attached in some place that is a rival to the worship of God, then the kingdom's days are numbered. Shall we bow together in prayer? Our Father, we pray that we may learn this great lesson of this book for our own hearts tonight, that out of the heart are the issues of life, and that as we watch that central place of desire, what do we want most of all in life? Lord, whom have we in heaven beside thee, and who on earth do we desire more than thee? This is the question that you leave hanging in the air with us as we close this book of First Kings tonight. We pray that we may answer it in the lowliness of our hearts before thee. In Christ's name, amen.